So there's an episode of The Simpsons called Bart's Inner Child that aired in uh, 1993. It's odd to think this episode is old enough to vote now. <laughs> and um, it's about a, a sort of a self-help guru, not an evil guy, but uh, Kind of shady, you know, kind of a snake oil salesman who comes to Springfield and what he really guesses appropriately and accurately about the people in Springfield is one, they want easy answers and two, they are gullible. So, you know, he starts selling them what they want to hear about how they can be happy absolutely immediately. And he starts in with this thing, this idea that he says, well, if we're not a human being, then we're a human doing and you know what comes next and setting it up beautifully for Bart to leap up off his chair and said, yeah, man, I'm a human going. <laughs> and recognizing that perhaps he's losing the crowd, or this is what he wanted to say all along, he invites Bart up to the stage with him to make his point. And he says, Bart, and I forget Bart tells him a lie of a name, something like Thaddeus or something like that. And he says, you know, you do what you do what you want to, don't you? You do what you want. Yeah, I do what I want to. And this self-help guru says, we should be like the boy. And everyone starts chanting, be like the boy, be like the boy, be like the boy. And so this wave passes all throughout Springfield, the town where the Simpsons are. And if everyone tries to be like the boy, they all just be happy. And so the annual do what we say festival becomes now the first time ever do what you feel festival. The only problem is, is that people stop doing what they had been doing. And so you have the Ferris wheel at this carnival setting that someone has forgotten to tighten the bolts on. And so it spins right off and some people are injured and everything in Springfield becomes absolute chaos because people did just what they felt like. Now, The Simpsons is often rightly described as a truly subversive show. I think it absolutely is how they have able to, uh, how they've been able to be subversive on Fox for over 20 years. I have no idea. It must be all the money that they make. They keep them on the air. However, in this one case, you actually hear echoes in their view of humanity and a deep theological assumption here, which is that if we did automatically what we felt like, things would go to hell. The assumption there is actually based upon a very old theological teaching that is directly contrary to the tradition from which we come, which is that we are inherently depraved. It is the teaching known as original sin, that we are only good under threat. We are only good under force. We are only good because of an external demand or command upon us. And absent those, everything will fall apart. But ours, this UU tradition, this liberal spiritual tradition has some different teachings that buffet it up one of those as has been said modern is that we affirm that there is the inherent worth and dignity of each person not the inherent depravity of each person we can affirm what is talked about in the buddhist tradition as the original buddha nature of each and every one of us that there is within us the deep capacity but also very simple for kindness and for basic goodness even in that story, that original story, that Genesis story, which we hear about, you know, Adam and Eve and the serpent and the apple and all that, although the words, the fall, by the way, never appear in that story, there's another story right next to it. Just after the creation, so-called, was finished, completed, it's, we know, not completed, not finished, but in this mythological story, a simple word was uttered by God over the creation. In Hebrew, it was tov. It was 
good. And so all kind of Western teachers have said that beyond just understanding ourselves as original sinners, well, no, maybe there's a different teaching there, which is that all of life is actually buffeted up by a sense of original blessing. Not an original sin, but original blessing is part and parcel of who we are and who we can be. And that is the theological assumption that serves as the foundation for this message series. For those of you who were here six weeks ago when I started it, I wanted to start 2011 very intentionally, not with talking about resolutions. Here's the way you can find the paths to achieve all the resolutions you wanted. I said, this is not going to be an efficiency series, how you can get more stuff done in our very important lives. There are already enough tools for you to do that if you wish to go down that path. What I encouraged and I hope I'm encouraging all of us to do is to actually slow down in our lives just a little bit, to not be driven by the tyranny of the clock and the tyranny of being on demand all the time. I believe that when we can do it based on the strength of our spiritual tradition, that actually that is the best way for us to get access to this sense of original blessedness, that when we slow down, we can cultivate this path through life and remember who we can be. Contrary to the self-help guru on The Simpsons, it is not easy, but it is very, very real, and it is a promise that is within each and every one of us. Several years ago, almost sort of unknowing it to myself, not quite conscious, not fully conscious of it, I vowed that I was going to try to conform myself more and more to this sense of original blessing. And as the new year came around this year, this 2011, I didn't have any specific resolutions. But I could feel within myself and I could see in so many of our lives that the tyranny of the on-demand was just getting to be so much. And I vowed to try to conform myself with a different way of living our lives to pay more attention. And so one of the practices that I took up with this is taking what they call the MBSR, the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program that has helped tens of thousands of people throughout our nation learn to exist within our lives more mindfully. Now, I can actually say with absolute truth that I am completely less stressed at this point in my life than I ever have been. But my life, like so many of yours, is really busy. And I don't say this to you to say, oh, look how hard he works. But Saturday, yesterday, I was in my office till six o'clock. It was a busy day. I had a lot of stuff to get done. A lot of our lives are like this. A lot of our lives are driven by that sense of we got to do important things. But I also know the cost of this to myself and for many of us. The cost that the band, the Avid Brothers, talk about when they sing, Will I ever know silence without mental violence? Will the ringing at night go away? Is there any place within us in which we can experience that deeper peace and contentment simply with being? We used uh, John Kabat-Zinn exercise last week in our worship service, during the message when we talked about mindfully eating that little raisin for those of you who are here, just relating to that raisin just as one single source of nourishment and not gobbling it right down, but taking time with it. In John Kabat-Zinn's great, great manifesto of mindfulness, full catastrophe living, he says these words, we are so apt to get caught up in the urgency of everything we have to do and so caught up in our heads in what we think is important, that it is, easy, it is easy to fall into a state of chronic tension and then chronic anxiety that continuously drives our lives on automatic pilot only. 
if we do not wish to have our lives driven by that automatic, unconscious, unmindful pilot, we need to be intentional about carving out other space within ourselves. One of my favorite practices for this comes from a book called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. She talks about something called morning pages. Morning pages are something that you would do if you want to undertake this practice. Really, the first conscious thing that you do when you wake up in the morning, you go right and you sit down and you write out, not type, because if we go to type, we're going to check email. Not this. We go out and we write three longhand pages of whatever comes to mind. It is very much a beginner's mind practice. Before we get into that headspace, very adult for many of us, of the auditor and the editor that says, if it doesn't make sense, we're not going to do it. I mean, when I did this a number of years back, one day it was three pages of the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog. The point is just to do it. The point is actually accept the invitation of what the talking heads told us a number of years ago, that in fact, we can stop making sense all the time. And through that access, a deeper creativity, that is part of that original blessing, getting in touch with creation that promise within each and every one of our lives. It is as Rumi said that when we do things from our soul, we feel that river of joy moving within us. The thing in the soul is no thing. It is unformed in many ways. And so learning to trust that creativity is really learning to go beyond that sense of we have to make sense for it to have value. This is what a professor of mine at seminary, Ann Ulanoff, praised and told and shared her whole philosophy of life of as doing good-for-nothing activities. Think of that phrase, good-for-nothing, so-and-so. I mean, we don't use this phrase very often. Maybe 40, 50, 60 years ago, so-and-so, they're a good-for-nothing. They're not worth much. <laughs> they don't have value. She flipped that around. She said good-for-nothing practices like spiritual practices, like morning pages, give us an invitation again to do something simply because in and of itself it's enjoyable and not because we're driven on automatic pilot to have to achieve something else external, something that's going to move us further and further and further down the line, thinking only instrumentally rather than about the things that have intrinsic native value to ourselves. And so I'm going to ask you just for a moment to do a little bit of mental inventory, just for a moment, mark this, and ask yourself, how many, if any, good-for-nothing practices do you have? Things that you do simply because you like them or you love them and don't necessarily give you any external value. One of my favorite stories about a good-for-nothing story is offered by a guy named Gregory Pelly. Some of you might have met Greg. We're going to be honored to work with Greg coming up starting this summer as our intern over the next two years. He is at our UU Seminary Meadville Lombard in Chicago, Illinois. Greg wrote an essay for my book called Wrestling with Adulthood about young adult UU men growing up and how we found our way and some of us still continuing to find our way into deeper maturity. He tells a story from a time in his life just a few years after it was decided between him and his wife that he would be the stay-at-home parent. He would be the stay-at-home dad. And so he went from leaving a successful career as an architect to someone whose life was about diapers and daycare and daddying. He tells this one story this particular day after his second child has been born. Her name is, very fittingly, I'm not making this up, Grace. It's one of those days that I'm sure none of you have ever parented this way if you are parents, right? None of you have ever parented this way. It's the day of, come on, let's go, let's go now, you're holding me back, come on, let's go, quick. 
And Grace just was not cooperating. The shoes weren't tied, and the nose kept running. And then finally, when Greg reached his moment of frustration, he picked her up from a play date or daycare somewhere, and they were coming back home. Grace, get in the house. Grace, get in the house now. And she's all the way at the end of the walk leading up to the house. Grace, come on, like a dog. You know, come on. Come here, Grace. Come on. She's not budging. She's sitting there with a stick pointing at something at the edge of the sidewalk. And no matter how much Greg pleads and begs, she ain't moving. So he goes to get her and he's going to yank her away. Come on in the house. But then he spies there. What has her so transfixed? At the edge of that stick that she is pointing with, she sees this little tiny ant pushing, pulling, climbing over this crust of bread that is four times the ant's size, just exerting all of its energy to try and bring it back to where the ant wants to take it. And Greg all of a sudden finds himself being reintroduced to what it is to wonder at the world again. He puts himself in the place of Grace, his two-and-a-half-year-old, and the two of them stand there almost sort of rooting on this ant, hoping it can get to where they want to go until finally it gets to the edge of the sidewalk and it pitches over into the leaves. And Grace says, okay, we can go, and wanders back in the house. Through this experience, what I hear is an echo of one of my favorite teachings by Jesus. Points to a child, says, truly, if you want to taste what heaven is like, become like one of these. And if you don't, you will never know what heaven is like. What Greg learned in that moment is the grace to stop, stop being driven on demand, Stop being driven by the tyranny of the clock is also the grace to start seeing the world again differently in a deeper way. The grace to stop is not that the clock actually stops. That never happens. What we do is we change our war within around that clock. I know some of us, and I feel myself this way, sometimes I feel liberated after I've met a deadline. Ah, it's all done. I've beat the clock. I can relax for a moment. And I think maybe, you know what, if I just get a little bit more efficient in all my practices, I can beat the clock all the time. But that does not work. It's the same reason if you've ever sat at the craps table or a blackjack table at a casino, why if you're up, they keep giving you free stuff. Because eventually, if you sit at that table long enough, you're going to give it all back. It's the same thing with trying to beat the clock in our lives. Eventually, the clock will always win out over us. If, however, we admit that we will play life not by the clock's rules, but try to find something deeper, we will understand what it is to reorient our attitude towards time because time does win eventually. I love the way Emily Dickinson put it with irony over 150 years ago. She said, because I could not stop for death, death Kindly stop for me. In one form or another, death time is going to stop for us whether we want it to or not. 
when we can with the good-for-nothing practices, when we can sync up with the sense of original blessing, we recognize that there is something deeper than just time in our lives, that there is the quality of recognizing that as many of us live on the surface of the ocean, in the waves, in the turbulence, in all the things that buffet us back to and fro, sometimes we think that's all there is. But when we remember that there is that deeper ocean, that the waves, yes, are real, even if sometimes they are brutal, It's not the whole ocean. When we can connect, we find that deeper source of strength and wisdom that is always there. And the great paradox is that it is those people who are good for nothing who are, in fact, simply the most good. Some of you might know the name Lawrence Kohlberg. He had stages of moral development. Perhaps you remember this from a psych class. It's not the first or last word about ethical development. There's a lot of critiques to be made of it. But I think there's something that he really did get right when he talked about his stages. The first stage is crime and punishment. You don't do this because you're going to get punished for it. And if you can get away with it and you're not going to get punished for it, well, then it's good to do. That's kind of the way where Bart is. And that's what the people of Springfield want to do. If they can get away with it, everything is cool and they're being good. And if that's all there was in human life, original sin would make complete sense. But, of course, it's not all there is in our lives. And Kohlberg talks about the different stages of moral development all the way up to what he calls stage six. And he uses names like Gandhi and Dr. King and Mother Teresa, people for whom goodness is its own reward, people for whom they love because simply loving is their call. They are kind simply because kindness is their call. But the thing is, it's not that rare a capacity. We don't have to think about the quote-unquote spiritual greats. There are millions of people worldwide who are kind simply because kindness is its own reward, who are loving because loving is its own quality that is good for nothing. Our busyness, and I think this is the hardest edge we can put on it, our busyness wants to tell us that we are the center of it all. Once we can remember to slow down, we see that there are other people here alongside the path with us. And that, in fact, we can be released into a deeper presence. The greatest irony of letting go of the tyranny of making everything efficient and having it make sense is that actually we will get a lot more done. I love the Buddhist quote, You are entitled to the work, not the reward. You are entitled to the work, not the reward. I first heard this associated with the life of August Wilson. Some of you might remember who he was, if you knew who he was. He wrote 10 plays, 10 epic plays before he died young, relatively young at the age of 60, what he called the Pittsburgh Cycle, each one for a decade of life throughout the 20th century, all about his fellow African-Americans. An epic undertaking. He won Pulitzer Prizes. These are long plays, three and a half hour, four hour plays. Over his workstation, August Wilson had the words, you are entitled to the work, not the reward. And I believe the reason he was able to produce so much in this life, of so much of lasting beauty and meaning as well, is because the work was the thing for him. We become, in fact, more productive by not focusing on productivity, but trying to remove all that anger and worry and stress and resentment, and all the things that can build up as we go through this life. We can connect with that original blessing, and these things drop away. We find that we have so much less resistance upon our lives and upon our souls. We find what it is not just to know efficiency, 
but to remember to practice excellence. We reorient our lives in this way. I think it opens up for me what Jesus was talking about with the Beatitudes, which originally understood as teachings on the nature of happiness. But I think there are a number of other Beatitudes that also make sense. When I've worked with this message series, a word that has come up over and over and over for me has been the word beholding. Kind of like what Greg did with his daughter Grace and the aunt. Just beheld, not grasped, not tightened or locked down, but just beheld what was there in that moment. That ability to open ourselves up to what is really here in our lives. And I think once we take the word apart, we see that actually it makes even more sense to be in a way that we are simply holding the truth and the meaning and the events of our lives. Of course, there are so many other ways to be. We could exist in this way. We could go through lives be sighing. Oh, it's such a drudgery. There's so much work. Oh, you know, I mean, when you sigh, you're, you're just can barely get through. There's another way to live here, too. You know, there's be worrying. I know a lot of people like that. A lot of people where it's worry, worry, worry. Oh, my God. What's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? Where's the next shoe going to drop? Of course, there's this way as well, too. Not real pleasant. Probably the least pleasant. Be snarling. Get out of my way. You're in my way to getting my stuff done. I'm the center. I'm busy. I'm in demand. Be snarling is not much fun. But a lot of people do it. But then there is beholding, the capacity to simply allow what is there to be there and to recognize it and to value it and to recognize that if we live in this way, we get to even a deeper thing. We can befriend our lives, not see them, our lives, as an endless battle to try to get all the stuff done and beat the clock but to befriend ourselves and befriend each other and befriend this source of life that animates all our lives. I'm going to end this message series with a creation story, one of my favorite. It is mythological, of course. But it is said that on the day after creation was quote-unquote finished, completed, not so we know, God took three angels out and said, what do you think of my creation?" Tell me what you think. And the first one, first angel, a little skeptical. What does it do? Gone. Takes a second angel out. What do you think of this creation? Second angel. Can I trust it? third angel is invited out. God sort of lost all hope by this point. What do you think of my creation? Third angel says nothing. Just starts applauding. That is original blessing. And as much as it was true mythologically then, it is certainly true now. Joy is ours to the extent that we open ourselves to it and recognize that our lives are blessed even in spite of all their difficulty. May your lives today not be at all in demand. Instead, may you live your lives. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together great source of being, 
and beholding and befriending. May we live fully this day. May this be our vow to be right here, right now, no place else. May we find in this quality of beholding what we need, not everything all at once, but valuing what is there and making it enough. In this beholding, may we be befriended and may we befriend others so that the final word that is upon all of our lives is that finally we may say that truly we are all beloved. Amen.